Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Andrea Lay. Andrea spent 10 years at Amazon where she led over 15 product categories, helped launch Amazon's automated pricing system, and ran Amazon Prime for Amazon Canada. Since leaving Amazon in 2015, Andrea has continued to become a thought leader in e-commerce industry as a consultant, frequent keynote speaker, and serving as VP of Strategy and Growth at IdeoClick, a leading provider of software, advisory, and management services for manufacturer brands. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work at Amazon? I'm sure I didn't do it justice with that bio. Um, Yeah, I was there for 10 years and I spent my whole time in the e-commerce division. My sort of original role coming right out of business school, like many of Amazon's employees, was working on the media team, uh, working on high-profile book launches back before Kindle was (laughs) uh, even a glimmer in anyone's eye. And I worked on Harry Potter book launches. And with the time we had, I had established a partnership with Oprah's, with the Oprah show, and we were doing Oprah's book club. We had a special club that we did with them to, to launch each of their books. I wrote some of the other early projects were writing the original business requirements for Amazon's price matching software. So that was the big one. And I, I kind of continued in, that, in one of those pricing subject matter expert roles for a really long time. And then obviously that became very useful when I worked on Canada, when we were getting that going, as, as you probably remember, Tyler. So those were some early, early roles and then spent some time on in the grocery category, launching third party and fulfilled by Amazon Grocery. I joined the team, you know, a few months after we had launched the grocery category overall. So I worked with all of signing all of the General Mills and Mars and <laughs> Cloroxes um, into into the category. We from there went to Amazon Fresh and spent some time leading general merchandise for Amazon Fresh as we were getting ready to prepare the business to go uh, national from from just being a Seattle operation. And then spent my last three and a half years on Amazon Canada, which was probably, I mean, there were a lot of fun roles, but that was probably the most fun of my career there because it was sort of like Amazon five years before it had this kind of startup mentality and we were just really hiring and launching categories. I launched 15 product categories in Canada, and I ran the Amazon Prime program for Canada and was our transportation and fulfillment center liaison. So it was a really, really exciting and broad role. I got to hire and work with a lot of great people. And um, and then it was kind of time to try something else. <laughs> so I left Amazon after 10 years and started my own consulting firm. I did that for about three years and then joined my husband, actually. He's the CEO and co-founder of IdeoClick. Um, he started the company with Tom Furphy about 13, 14 years ago. And Tom was at that time the vice president of consumables at Amazon. So they left and started IdeoClick, and now we service over 350 brands managing their Amazon business, and we have just recently expanded to support advertising across Target, Walmart, and Instacart as well. And we're a full-service 
uh, managed services firm. So we do everything from content creation and catalog setup to full service marketing through our ad tech software, our proprietary ad tech software. And then we also do everything kind of on the back end as it relates to operations, third party management and operational compliance, going and getting those chargebacks and shortages back for vendors. So it's uh, I lead strategy there. I'm responsible for client strategy. So my job's really to be kind of out in the industry, understanding what's happening with the clients and market, what's really important to them right now, help really kind of them see around corners, and then bring a lot of that intel back into the organization in the form of upskilling. So I'm responsible for training our teams on those on those ideas, as well as you know implementing those into our client strategy. The thing that stands out as a theme for me is you've really been pulled to a lot of these nascent businesses. You definitely strike me as somebody that has that futuristic interest and skill set. So I want to talk a little bit, Andrea, about one of the leadership principles that a lot of folks will have heard of is this principle of bias for action. And, you know, despite Amazon's large size, it continues to evolve. And one of the things that, in my opinion, has helped Amazon make a lot of those fast bets and quick decisions is this principle of having a bias for action. Can you tell us more about that principle and how you saw it play out in practice during your Amazon career? Yeah, absolutely. So I think bias for action is a really interesting principle. And it's one of the ones that I don't think stands on its own super well. Like you have to have bias for action in conjunction with all of the other leadership principles. Dive deep, are right a lot, but it doesn't stand super well on its own because if you are have a strong bias for action without being right a lot or diving deep or learning and being curious, it's not going to work out super well for you. So I think it's an interesting leadership principle in that regard because it has to go with the other ones. But I think that how I mostly saw it play out or actually just kind of how I thought about it in terms of a framework was we used to talk at Amazon about this concept and you probably covered this with other folks on your previous podcast of like the one-way doors versus the two-way doors and if it's a if it's a one-way door that's maybe not a great time to really lean in on bias for action. Like you want to be really thoughtful about one-way doors. A one-way door is something that you can't really undo. It's like a change that can't be undone, a project that you can't unlaunch, you know, something that's and usually customer facing that, that can't be undone. And a two-way door is something that would be easy to exit. You know, if you launch something and it d- didn't return kind of what we were expecting, you could cancel it or you could shut it down. And so I think there's these one-way versus two-way doors. And when you are looking at two-way doors, bias for action is really important because there's low risk of trying and failing and learning something and then just shutting it down. Whereas with one-way doors, I think it's a little more complicated. You know, you really want to be a bit more thoughtful about what you're putting out there because you don't want to disappoint the customer. And a great example of one-way door might be the one-day shipping launch that Amazon recently went through. You can't undo that. You can't go back and say, actually, you know, I think we're going to do two-day shipping after it was harder than we thought. You know, you've set a customer expectation, and so it's really hard to go backwards. So I think that's an important factor I think that was an important factor at Amazon when we were looking, thinking about bias for action was, is this something that can be un- undone or not? And I think I, when I think about like some of the one-way versus two-way doors, you know, if you think about the Prime launch, like that's a great example of uh, a one-way door and they didn't just launch it, like they spent some time really thinking about it. I think there are other ones that were two-way that were super, we learned a lot from and were super exciting 
kind of going back to some of my earlier projects there around like the Oprah's book club, you know, we had sort of a partnership with Oprah. She would talk about buying all of the books on Amazon on the show. She would send the customers to Amazon. That's totally a a two-way door. You know, we can, we can not have that partnership at any point in time if it's not lucrative for us or if launching those titles according to her timeline wasn't going to work for us or whatever it was. So I think That's kind of how I think about the bias for action principle (laughs) in terms of the risk associated. Yeah, I love those examples. And I think we probably all got a little bit of a glimpse of just how much of a one-way door that one-day shipping promise was when COVID first hit, when Amazon was having a hard time getting things out with all the PPE shortages and whatnot. And so we saw some of those shipping promises get extended. And a lot of customers weren't happy, right? (laughs) Like you're used to that that one day. And so if you now tell me, I'm going to have to wait three, four, five days, like that that's almost like going back to another time when that was acceptable but but is really hard to swallow today. Yeah, we had a, a, some more of those on Amazon Fresh and they were really tricky. I mean, I could talk about Fresh all day, but I think one thing we learned about Fresh was it's really hard to experiment on an existing customer base. So, you know, we had our Seattle offering for a number of years before launching it nationally and in that we were doing a lot of experimentation to figure out how we would make money. <laughs> on grocery delivery. And one of the biggest drivers to the margin is the order order basket size. So like what, you know, what is a um how how much is a customer spending per trip? And we found originally we had no order minimum. So I mean, I remember like we would kind of kid around at at Amazon and we would order like M&Ms and a Diet Coke to be delivered. <laughs> to our desks and, you know, had fun with it. And we were testing out the service. But as the service began to grow, we realized like that those economics don't work. And so we had to continue ratcheting up the order minimum. And every time we did, we faced just such intense backlash from the customer base because they're like, well, it used to be $50. Why do I have to spend 100 now? Like, I don't have $100. You're making me change my behavior. And so it's really hard to experiment on a on an existing customer base. You know, it, it'd be totally a different experience if you just launched in a new market with a $100 order minimum. Like, that's now the expectation set. But if you've set the expectation a certain way and then you change it, I think that's really tricky. And that's kind of a great example of a one-way door. As I'm thinking about these examples here, I'm curious, would you see this one-way door criteria as being somewhat synonymous with perceived commitment to the customer? I think in some cases, yes, but I think there are other examples of one-way doors that are not as customer-facing. They're just super capital-intensive or you know, they're just like things that would be harder to shut down. Fair point. I want to touch on, so you shared some good examples of one-way doors. You mentioned the the Oprah Book Club as a two-way door decision, um, which was a big opportunity. So this certainly isn't a separation of big versus insignificant opportunities here. Can you maybe talk about one of the decisions that ended up becoming a two-way door decision that you were able to move fast on with your team at Amazon that did take a little bit of that calculated approach or some conversation because it, it didn't seem like an obvious or easy decision going into it. Yeah. So when we were in Canada, we did not have very good pricing software to help us price our products. And the reason being, because it was such a new market, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of competitive inputs to look at. And so we began to receive feedback from customers and obviously saw ourselves that our pricing was too high. Our retail prices were too high. Lack of competitive inputs and, you know, automated pricing with millions of items you know, where you don't have buyers setting prices and and you end up in a position where the pricing's too high. And so I think it was like in November 
which is in Q4, which usually you don't want to make a lot of changes then, you know, we, I sat down with my team and I was like, we have to figure out a way to address this. Like, how can we programmatically and thoughtfully reprice our entire catalog of hundreds of thousands of items? <laughs> because we are going into a holiday season where we're going to have a lot of traffic to the site and we, we don't want to develop an impression with a lot of new customers that Amazon Canada is, is outrageously priced. And so we worked, I had someone on my team who just was, had a really strong bias for action and worked out kind of a new pricing model that night. And we reviewed it over the course of a couple of days and we pressure tested it and we QA'd it and we went with it. And so we changed (laughs) the retail prices of every item in our catalog based on this logic that he had built in the middle of November, right before holiday, when, you know, that's not, it's usually not advisable to do a lot of big changes like that. And it was, I think it was a great example of bias fraction on my team's part for like recognizing that we can't go into the holiday season like this. In addition to like not seeing the sales that we want to see, we're, we're not meeting the customer expectation. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to want to see prices that are 20% higher than what they'd see in brick and mortar or whatever. And so we had a, you know, a customer sentiment challenge that we were up against. And so I think the, the whole idea of kind of presenting this, even in the time that, that he did, and then also in putting together a model to do it, and then the whole team just kind of rallying behind it and saying, okay, like we're all going to sign up to QA this as it goes live. And if it's, if it's not the right thing, like we're going to have to pull it back. It's a great example of the two-way door. You know, automated pricing is a great two-way door. You can just roll back to the previously published price. But we did it and it was really effective. And, and I think I got, it got us closer to market pricing on a lot of those products. That's very interesting. Anytime I think about making price changes at scale, I think the hair on the back of my neck stands up a little bit because you hear, and I'm sure that you know we probably both experienced in our time, Amazon pricing errors that can be very costly. But it sounds like one of the mitigation steps you had in place here was that QA process, that it wasn't just, you know, we think we have a good idea here and we're going to launch it and then cross our fingers, but you had the whole team QAing it so you could quickly catch and quickly respond to it. So I think that's key in terms of your response time. So something might be a two-way door decision, but if you don't catch the error for a long time, it could still be costly. I think there was more than hair raising when I went to our country manager and finance leader and said, we're going to go ahead and reprice the entire catalog. (laughs) I got a little more, I got a little more than hair raising, but it was the right thing to do and it, it worked and it was effective. If I could poke on that a little bit, you faced some hesitation, probably put it softly when you presented that idea. How did you get buy-in? And, and was that referencing this bias for action or maybe another part of Amazon's culture of leadership principles? I think it kind of went back to like focus on the customer because we were able to really pull in, pull a lot of data points into our case. I mean, we had to make a case for it and present it, which we had to do very quickly. We were able to pull in a lot of First of all, in data, like actual data that shows that we were overpriced and that we couldn't rely on the automated systems to help us with that because it, the automated systems did not have enough inputs yet. So that was one piece of it. And then we had some anecdotal customer feedback about it as well. And so we were able to put that case together to really help support our position that this was the right thing for us to do. Got it. You had some of this calculated risk taking involved even in a two-way door decision. So Andrea, the, the bias for action principle starts off by saying speed matters in business, which I think most of us would agree with, but isn't always the case across companies. 
Was there a time in your work at Amazon where you made one of these decisions and then realized that it helped you capitalize on a really big or a meaningful market trend or market opportunity that if you were at another company, you think you would have likely missed because you wouldn't have had the same speed in decision making? I sort of have the inverse of that, which is the project I recommended we kill um, because it wasn't working. And I thought we were going to be pretty exposed financially if we continued working on it. And it was pretty early in my career there. So I was a bit nervous about it because it was my whole job <laughs> to, do, to do this thing. So we were we had launched the grocery category and we decided we wanted to sell perishables. This was way before Fresh or anything. And we were going to do it through a drop shipping model. So I was meant to be launching this program and we were going to go set up ice cream vendors and steaks and all kinds of fresh and refrigerated and frozen foods. And then it would be drop shipped to customers. And the economics on it were a little bit fuzzy to begin with. But as we began pursuing this, and I think I had about 30-ish vendors set up at this point, and I started to look at some of the economics as they were rolling in, it was really bad for us. And it was really bad for the customer. Like if you are ordering ice cream from a drop shipper, you know, they've got to put dry ice in there. They have to ship it overnight. Dry ice is heavy. You know, you're talking like doubling the retail prices of the items, sometimes tripling them in some cases in order to cover the costs of all of these necessary things. And you have to be right because you have to price the items according to all these inputs. And I just didn't think after kind of rolling with this program for a few months, I just didn't think customers were ever going to buy this stuff. You know, we were going to end up setting it all up. We were going to work out all these relationships. We were going to be pretty exposed. The pricing was shaky at best because we didn't have all the inputs. And looking at kind of the broader initiatives of the team, I didn't think that this should be a top priority. You know, this is it's not going to grow very fast. The prices are way too high. Stuff showing up melted at customers' houses. Like we got we got to pull the plug on this thing. And so I remember going to my leadership after working on this for about two or three months, which I think in most organizations would be considered a very short time. At Amazon, that's considered a very long time to you know beat your head against the wall on something that's not going to work. And I remember writing a document and bringing it to my manager and saying, "We got to pull the plug on this thing. Like this is not. I know you guys thought this was a good idea, but like here are the economics." here's the customer impact. You know, we, this is not good. Like we should, we are working on getting something called Amazon Fresh Ready. We should wait for that. <laughs> like this is not the way to sell ice cream. And, uh, you know, at the refrigerated and frozen goods category is enormous. And Amazon certainly wanted a share of it, but this wasn't the right way to do it. And I remember being a little fearful because it was my whole job. So if I wasn't going to do this, hopefully they would have something else for me to do. <laughs> or maybe I was about to fire myself. I didn't know. <laughs> You referenced earlier in the conversation about how bias for action doesn't really stand on its own. It's interrelated with all these other leadership principles. It sounds like you proposed something that clearly wasn't in your own career interests, at least it didn't seem that way, um, but was the right thing for the business to do. And it makes me think of earned trust as not having too much of a kind of a protective barrier or an ego to admit when maybe something that you're involved with isn't the right thing to be doing and a change needs to be made and really earning trust through that transparency. Obviously, Fresh has gone on to be very successful and you had a hand in that as well. And so I'm sure in hindsight, even more credit to that being the right decision. Thanks for sharing that example. Andrea, I want to fast forward a little bit. You've now spent several years outside of Amazon building and growing IdeaClick into what it's become today. Have you found bias for action to play into your work as you help scale your current organization? 
Yeah, I have. And I think it's a little bit different in an agency environment. Like at, at Amazon, we were focused on, well, obviously focused on the end customer and, and everyone needed to do their part in their departments to drive a successful business that would be uh, accretive to the customer experience. In agency environments, it's a little bit different because you're all about the client and you live and die by the client and you live and die by the customer as well. But each single customer you know, is not as impactful to the business as a client is in an agency environment. So I think there's this like teamwork and camaraderie element that you get in this kind of an atmosphere that's really different than not that Amazon didn't have good teamwork, but I've just observed that this is like a very, it's on a different level in an agency environment. You know, we have something that we say inside of IdealClick, which is if you see something, say something. And that means if you see something that looks off, you know, about the way that we're addressing a client's need, or you see something off in their data, or you see that their business might not be headed the right direction, or you just get a feeling that something's off, say something. And I think that's kind of, in some ways, like a version of our bias for action, which is, you know, we don't want to sit with anything that doesn't feel right for the client. If someone's observing something that doesn't seem right, then they should say something. And I think that's been really critical to our culture is that kind of client first mentality. Like we all rally around the need for the client. And sometimes that means that it's really hard work. You know, if there's a tight timeline or deliverable, you know, I remember leading up to certain client monthly business reviews or annual business reviews, you know, doing the all-nighters and sending the document back and forth over email. And we're all working on it until really late. But it's it's fun and exciting because you're helping these clients grow their businesses online and you're helping upskill their organizations so that they can build successful e-commerce businesses. So I think that's how it's kind of translated for us. And then, I mean, obviously any business that is working entirely on Amazon is going to be pretty focused on moving quickly. And we're often encouraging our clients to have more bias for action. You know, we move fast. We're an agency. Like, we have to move fast. We support Amazon. We have to move fast. And so we're often working with our clients to get them to move fast, too. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that a lot of our clients face in working with e-commerce is that e-commerce requires a level of speed and agility that is unprecedented for many of these brand manufacturers. And they're trying to adapt to that, right? Like, they're trying to figure out how they can become more agile within their organizations and make decisions more quickly and, you know, push content changes live more quickly and uh, make big business decisions, launch products more quickly. And that's something that we continue to work with our clients on is kind of helping them get there. I like your example or juxtaposition between Amazon as a big organization that has products and sales and transacts to an agency where it's client focused and love those examples of staying up and getting that report done and, and really being customer obsessed in your own work as well. Very helpful to see things through the lens of IdeoClick. Maybe looking at it through the lens of the brands now, since you're unique in that you've worked with hundreds and hundreds of brands on Amazon, on other e-commerce marketplaces, are there things that you consistently see as opportunities where brands could have a little bit more bias for action or think about how they can be faster in decision making in certain areas? That's a really good question. So I think most manufacturers, this is an overgeneralization, but most manufacturers we work with approach retail from a very specific and traditional mental model, which is I sell the goods to the retailer and the retailer takes care of shelf positioning and marketing and assortment planning and inventory and even their own profitability. And the mental model for e-commerce has to shift to properly support e-commerce. 
because the burden of a lot of that responsibility now falls on the manufacturer. So the manufacturer is responsible for whether they're in stock or not. They're responsible for if the retailer makes money, they have to do their own marketing. And so there's this mental model shift that a lot of manufacturers that we work with are going through to figure out how they can be more nimble and how they can better support e-commerce. And I think the bias for action in making that mental model shift, that mindset shift, is I think one of the areas most manufacturers could benefit from is figuring out how to get there faster. And we often see that kind of the boots on the ground working on the e-commerce businesses, the frontline kind of folks are, are pretty savvy when it comes to operating on these marketplaces, but maybe more at the more senior leadership levels, they're less so. And, and that makes sense because they're still doing like 80% of their business in brick and mortar and, and a lot less of it online. But I think that mental model shift is where manufacturers could benefit the most, like adapting that thinking a little bit. And a classic example of where we see that is the manufacturer not really understanding Amazon's pricing logic, you know, thinking that the margin losses for that can still be the retailers versus the brands. But I think another is really understanding who their competitors are online. And it's not the same ones that are sitting next to them on the brick and mortar shelf. And if you don't understand that and you're still measuring yourself against who's sitting next to you in brick and mortar and you're thinking that those are the competitors online, you're going to lose because it's a different set. It's a different competitive set. And so there needs to be a real bias for action for understanding that, getting data around that, even just like looking at it, like running some searches to see who's sitting there using some kind of software to do that. We have share of search, other agencies have other things, but I think that would probably benefit them the most is just really getting a handle on that competitive set so they can build a strategy. Amen to the use of data to figure out what's really going on in the growing parts of your business. For maybe brands or individuals that haven't yet made that mental model shift, Have you seen steps or practices that some have taken to adapt that others could apply? Yeah, I think it's a less about, and actually, I think I wrote an article for Forbes about this. It's less about encouraging people to have a bias for action, and it's more about how you treat failure. And I think that if you are... most organizations don't like to fail and most people don't like to fail and failing is considered bad. And organizations who sort of adopt that mentality, which I think is really common, are less likely to see strong bias for action in their employees. They're less likely to see innovation. They're less likely to see risk taking because if you take a risk and you fail, bad things are going to happen or at least good things aren't going to happen. And so I think more than focusing on getting people to act quickly and innovate, organizations could benefit from changing how they treat failure. Instead of holding failure up as something bad or maybe swiping it under the rug and just kind of saying, we're not going to talk about that, like pulling apart the failure to understand where the what the learnings were. There's always a learning. And so in that way, failure is positive. And I, th- I think that's certainly what Amazon does and did. You know, they were very focused on... Uh, what did we learn from that? Let's fail a lot. <laughs> like there are a lot of public failures, I think, that people know about, like the fire phone and the dash buttons and stuff, but there are hundreds of other ones that never saw the light of day because people failed on them and Amazon learned something and they helped them, the organization, launch something better next time. And so I think that figuring out how you treat failure, I think a great example of this is we're on Amazon Fresh. If you're, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephanie Landry, but she, her first job at Amazon was setting up all the pickup points, like in t- circa 2008 or something. And so they set up these pickup points around Seattle. She was the project manager for it, and people didn't want to pick up. Like it didn't work. Like we were too early, or at the time we just thought people don't want to do this. And so we had to take it down. 
And so <laughs> like her first project, you know, she launched, it was a capital investment. I mean, they had to build these pickup centers and people didn't want to pick up and it didn't work and we had to take them down. And now she's the lead, you know, she's like the VP for all of um, Prime Now, Fresh, I don't know, she owns grocery, she owns a whole bunch of stuff over there now. And I think that pickup point failure was considered a huge career propeller for her. Like after she, and then she didn't have a role anymore because she was the pickup point person. And she was considered like a super hot commodity within Amazon. Like teams were, are dying to, to hire people who've worked on projects that have failed because they, they well, first they've shown tenacity, they've shown they can launch something, they show tenacity and grit and bias fraction, all these great things. But they also, um, you know, the company also learns a lot from those failures as well. So I think it's for the organizations trying to figure out how to get people to be, move faster and be more innovative. I think instead of thinking about that, you got to think about how you're treating the failure. From what you shared there, it reminds me of two things that I heard a lot at Amazon. One is to fail fast. And this idea that if you're not failing sometimes at some things, you're probably not moving fast enough. You're probably playing it too safe. And that's probably a bad thing. It probably means you're not doing as much as you could be doing for customers. And then this other idea that the only true failure is not learning and not applying what you can take away from really deep diving a past failure. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think we all saw that in COEs and in other processes at Amazon where it's, that's fine if you fail and that doesn't have to kill your career. In fact, it can help your career so long as you really help the organization learn from that investment in an opportunity that didn't work out or wasn't the right time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Andrea, this has been really great. What advice do you have for listeners, many of whom are managing teams or businesses on how they can improve their speed in decision making or apply some of these bias for action principles? Yeah, I would take a real hard look at how you treat failures. Like when someone on your team failed recently, how did you treat it? Like, what did people say about that person? What did you say to that person? How did that person feel about their work? Like really thinking about and examining how we're treating failure, I think is the best way to understand what we can learn from it. And then changing that within your organization, I think is how you get people to to have more bias for action and, and take more risks. Great advice. And we'll wrap it up with that. Andrea, thanks for coming on the show. Where can listeners follow you or learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn. I write a ton about e-commerce for all kinds of different publications, including Forbes and Ad Exchanger and Entrepreneur. So you can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can visit my website at andreakaleconsulting.com. That's where I have all of my articles and work kind of collected. And then you can visit us at IdeoClick at ideoclick.com. We'll post those resources down in the show comments here. Thanks again, Andrea. It's been great having you on the episode. Yeah, it's nice to see you again, Tyler. Take care.